Well, how excited I am to ask you to turn to James chapter 1 with me. James chapter 1. Starting tonight, a new book of the Bible that we get to study together and look into. And I promise you, this will be helpful, it will be beneficial, it will be a great blessing to you. As you sit under the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, not because of me, but because of the power of the Word of God, which will work in all of our hearts as we give our attention to the Word. James chapter 1, follow with me as I read verses 1 through 4. James 1, verses 1 to 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. If you could ask God any question, any question about the difficulties and trials that God has brought in your life, what would you ask of God? I mean, just think of where God has brought you, what God has brought into your life, the trials and the hardships and the struggles that you have faced, what would you say to God? How would you pray to God? What would you ask? And and maybe it's the life-changing, maybe it's the small, but the persistent. Maybe it's the internal battles. Maybe it's the external difficulties that you face. Maybe it has to do with family. Maybe it has to do with work. Maybe it would have to do with finances. Maybe it would have to do with marriage, your children, your parents, spiritually, interpersonally with other people. We always remember, and we know this, that trials do not knock at your door. They don't ring the doorbell and sit there patiently waiting for you to come to the door to open and let them in. Trials beat down the door and invade when you least expect them. Now, why does God bring hardship into your life? Why does God bring the trials into your life and into my life? Where is God in your trial? I mean, is he there? And does he care? Well, what does God want you to do, and how does God want you to act? How does God want you to think? How does God want you to respond when the pressures of life seem to be so much that they're squeezing? That's the idea in the Hebrew Old Testament Bible. They're squeezing the life out of you, and you don't know what to do. How do you respond? Why all of this? Why me, God? Why now? What's the plan? And what's the purpose in all of this? 
Maybe you've asked some of those questions, and maybe you've wondered some of those questions, and you and I can have the right theology about some of those answers, and that's what we're going to look at in coming weeks and months as James brings us to that. But yet I want to give you at the very beginning here some very practical reminders that you need to remember. Number one, you need to know that God is involved in your trial. You see, to be a Christian, there's not a trial that you go through where God is sort of far away and God is outside and God is distant and God is uninvolved. The Christian life doesn't work like that. You need to know that God is involved. Second, you need to have comfort. You're going to hear me say that a lot today. You need to have comfort because, listen, every hardship in your life comes from your loving Father's grace. Every hardship in your life comes from your loving Father's heavenly grace. And then there's another introductory point that I want to give you. Number three, you need to rest. You need to rest in the wise design of God. You see, you and I just sort of can't go up and see the master plan of God from heaven's perspective. We have to rest in the fact that God is wise, and he's the governor of all things, and he has decreed all things, and he has already planned the end from the beginning, and it's for his glory and your good. You can rest in that. And Christian, number four, You need to receive. You need to receive this very sobering truth. Can I just say it? You've not arrived to perfectionism yet. I've not arrived at perfectionism yet. One day in glory we will, but we're not there yet. And so God brings hardship and he brings trials. Get this. Because God loves his people so much that he wants to grow you. And he wants to stretch you, and he wants to refine you, and he wants to mature you in your faith. James is going to bring us to that as we look at these opening verses today. More about trials and hardship and tribulations in our life. Now, the book of James, let me just give a brief moment of background because we're beginning a new book and it's helpful to know a little bit of the background of this great book. James is like the wisdom book of the New Testament. I like to think of it as the Proverbs of the New Testament. James is the Proverbs of the New Testament, and here's what that means. It is intended not just to give you intellectual knowledge or wisdom, but skill for living. That's what Proverbs do in the Old Testament. They want you to have skill for living. James is the same way. He wants you to have knowledge, yes, but it must transform to be a hearer and a doer skill for living. The book of James, if you want to put one little phrase in your mind, what is the whole book about? Faith in action. You need to have faith in action. James, all through this five-chapter little letter, he's going to call for, he's going to command, and he's going to preach holy living. You say you have faith, we'll show it in your life. You say you have faith in Jesus, prove it. 
Prove it. A lot of people say they have faith, but they have no works. And James will call that a dead faith. So James, unashamedly in this letter, he is calling for uncompromising obedience. Uncompromising obedience. Now, the author, of James, uh, the author of the book, James the man, we need to know which James this is. This is James, the brother of Jesus, uh, the brother of Jesus, not one of the 12 apostles. This James right here is the brother of Jesus who grew up in the home with Jesus and his brothers and his sisters with Mary and Joseph. This little letter mirrors the Sermon on the Mount. That is, James was probably there when his older brother Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount because so much of this book mirrors and echoes what Jesus said there. This book of James was probably the first of the New Testament books written. I think the book of James was written in the early to mid-40s A.D., within a decade of after Jesus died and rose from the dead. Now, here's what you need to know about James. James, after he came to faith, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem in the early couple of decades after His brother, the Lord Jesus, was raised from the dead. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, James is the first one listed among the pillars of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, even before Peter and John. So James is a man who is writing this little letter full of energy and vividness and passion, and it's full of clarity, it's full of word pictures, and get this, 59 commands in five little chapters. 59 commands. I mean, here's a preacher who says, I want you to live out your faith. You say you're a Christian, live it out. You say you follow Jesus, prove it. Prove it by the way that you live. Live out your faith. Real faith will show itself in one's life. A true faith will always be a working faith, a serving faith, and obedient faith. You're never saved by your good works, but if you are truly saved, you will always and inevitably, not always, you will inevitably have a life of good works. Look at verse one. Look at how James begins his letter. James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is so remarkable about James is, you know, from the book of John, chapter 7, verse 5, that for nearly the entire ministry of Jesus, his brothers weren't even believing in him. So this man, James, was a non-believer during the whole preaching ministry of his brother, Jesus. Until Jesus rose from the dead. That's when God awakened him, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus manifested himself to his brother, James. And James calls himself, in verse 1, a servant. But he's not just a servant. It's the word slave. I'm a slave of God, and I am a slave, get this, of my brother, Jesus. I mean, Paul could say, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was given a heavenly vision. And those are Paul's credentials. And he does that appropriately so. Here's James' credential. I'm a slave of my brother. I'm owned by him. He loved me. He died for me. 
I was lost, and now I'm found. I used to shun the light, and yet now I'm a servant of the light. And verse 1 continues, he's writing to the 12 tribes. Well, that means that he's writing to early Jewish Christians who are scattered because of persecution. I think this is the persecution that came when Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7 and 8. The believers in the Jerusalem area are scattered, and many of them go north even into the Syria area. James, the pastor, is writing a letter to the scattered early Jewish Christians, and he wants them to know, you say you follow Jesus, you say you're a believer. Live, live it out, live it out. But but you need to know this as well. One more thing regarding James the man. In the early church, this man, James, was called James the Just. James the Just. Why? Because he had a reputation of being so outwardly righteous and godly. Not not in an outward facade hypocritical way, but he was just a man who had been transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was such a godly, a holy, a righteous, a just man that he was called James the Just. The early testimony of the early church tells us that James would often be found in the Jerusalem temple and the courts around there on his knees praying for forgiveness from God for himself and for his persecutors who hated him. Uh, Some of the early Christian writings talk about this James who had another nickname. He was called the James with camel knees because he was on his knees so much praying. He was a man of prayer. He was called James the Just because of his godliness, his holiness, his piety, his prayerfulness. And he had a really brutal death. You can read about it in Fox's Book of Martyrs. But he loved his Savior. He loved his brother. He loved his Redeemer. Now, James, after giving his credentials in the introduction in verse 1, now in verse 2, it's like he swings the door open and he comes out as a loving pastor with an urgent message, you need to hear and you need to obey this. What's the point? Your walk must match your talk. You say you're on the team, you say you've got the jersey, prove it, play like it, show it, demonstrate it. And so in these opening few verses, as James is writing to early Jewish Christians who are being scattered for their faith, James begins with a very important and urgent message. Our opening section today in these four verses explain what you and I are to do when we encounter trials. So if you're taking notes, this section here is going to give us three super practical pastoral guides when you go through trials. Now, I would encourage you, these are, these are short, they're simple, I've not made them real long and lengthy, I want them to be short, because when you're going through the trial, it's sometimes hard to sort of think through these things, so we want to plan ahead, we want to prepare, commit these to memory, pray through them, 
and ask God to give you grace. What are the practical pastoral guides when you go through trials? Number one, we're going to see that you must be joyful. Number two, you must be hopeful. Number three, you must be patient. Now, in my flesh, I don't want to hear those. Everything in our human nature, our flesh fights against that when hard times come our way. But be joyful, number one. Be hopeful, number two. And be patient, number three. That's what we're going to see in verses two and three and four. So the first super practical pastoral guide that James gives when you go through trials, look with me in your Bible. Number one, be joyful. Verse two. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it joy. He doesn't say always be happy and giddy. He doesn't say have a good feeling about everything. He says be joyful. It's a command. What is joy? Joy is not so much an emotion as it is a settled disposition of the heart. Joy is not a fickle feeling that kind of comes and goes in life, but joy is a firm trusting. Let me say that again. Again, joy is a firm trusting. A trusting in what? Joy is a steady confidence that God is good and that God is in control. My life could be falling apart and crumbling in my perspective. Your health could be failing. The whole world could be turning against you. You could become a martyr for the faith. And yet, with all of the difficulties, you can have joy. Why? Because it's not an emotion. It's not a fickle feeling. It is a steady confidence that God is good and that my God is in control. If that's joy, even in the difficult times, we can still have joy. We can choose to be joyful. And that's what James brings out. Look at here at verse 2. It is a command, consider it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials. Do you see that word consider? Consider. Count. Maybe you might have in your Bible, count it all joy. What is the idea here? James is not saying, I want you to feel good. That's not the point. He's not talking about how you feel. James is saying, I want you to think this way. I want you to maintain this attitude when you're going through difficult times. I say it all the time in biblical counseling. When hard times come, you need to live by what you know, not by how you feel. That's so important, Christian. We need to hear that. When the difficult times come, we need to live by what we know rather than how we feel. And that's what James brings out. I want you to consider, I want you to have this attitude, this disposition in your life. Now, do you see in verse 2, we, I'm, I'm a Bible preacher, an expository preacher, and we care about the words of the text. Do you see in verse 2, 
Consider it all joy. What's the next word? What is it? My brethren, then what after that? When? When? When you encounter trials. He doesn't say if. I mean, you wish he said if. If you encounter trials. And then you might say, well, I hope I'm one of those people that might escape the trial. But there's no if. There's no exception here. Consider it all joy when, when you encounter trials. What's the word for trial? What is a trial? It's any difficulty. Any difficulty. It could be a hardship. It could be an adverse circumstance. It could be internal. It could be external. It could be mild. It could be severe. It could be a momentary trial. It could be a lifelong trial. What's a trial? A trial is a hardship. God is saying to you, Christian, consider, think, reckon, have this attitude that you count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter difficulties, hardships. Trials, conflicts within, it could be conflicts without, it could be conflicts ahead, it could be conflicts in your past, it could be conflicts interpersonally, it could be conflicts with your health, it could be conflicts with uncertainties, I don't know what to do and I don't know what the future holds. But you know what? Christian, you can rejoice. You want to know why you can rejoice? You can rejoice because your heavenly father, did you notice in verse two, he says, my brethren, he's writing to Christians, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have made it their resolve to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can rejoice because your heavenly father, who is full of love, full of grace, listen, He is up to good in your difficulty. He's up to good. Now, here's what's hard. You and I might not always know what that good is in our difficulty. But as Christians, we we need to have a theology of suffering, a, a sufferology, as we could call it. We've got our Christology, and we have our doctrine of the church, and doctrine of end times, and doctrine of the Bible, but... We need to have a doctrine of suffering. Let me give you a couple thoughts on this. Christian, God is always in your trial. He's in it. He's not outside of it. He's not far away. He's not distant. Christian, hear this. Maybe you're in the trial right here today. You need to hear God is in the trial with you. And God is in love, has brought the trial to your life. God brought the trial into your life. We we might even be more specific. Number three, God has handcrafted the trial for you in your life. And yet with that, we also need to remember that God controls your trial. He controls it. It's not fate. It's not bad luck. It's not culture, it's not experience, it's not something outside of you, sort of out there in this world somewhere. No, God controls your trial. 
And also hear this, Christian, one day God will soon end your trial. Now, that's not a guarantee that it's going to go away tomorrow. But one day there will be no more sin, pain, sorrow, sickness, or tears. God is good and worthy to be praised. Did you hear what Carol said at the end? She quoted Revelation 4. God is worthy to be praised. It's hard for bringing the trial into your life. And you can trust him. You can trust in your good God. Now, hear this. If your goal in life is comfort... You'll never have joy in your trials. Never. But if your goal in life is God, for to me to live is Christ. I want God. I want to worship God. I want to honor God, know God, love God, be brought into fellowship with his sufferings. Philippians 3, 9 and 10. If your goal is God, then you can count it all joy when you encounter trials. This is how we can consider it all joy, complete joy, fullness of joy, undiminished joy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, After he recounts all of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How are you sorrowful and yet always rejoicing at the same time, in the same breath? Because joy is a steady confidence that God is good and that God is in control. Christian, you can suffer and you can be sad. And you can be going through hardship and pain and trouble. And yet you can say with Paul, I'm sorrowful, but I'm rejoicing in my God. I am rejoicing in God. It reminds me, let me just illustrate this. It reminds me of what one Athenian philosopher by the name of Aristides, he was writing to the emperor Hadrian in about 120 or so A.D., He was writing a letter, this non-believing philosopher, writing to the Roman emperor about Christians. And he said, every morning and all hours of the day, these Christians keep praising and worshiping God. We put them to death and they keep worshiping God. And if any righteous person among the Christian community passes away, the Christians still rejoice and they give thanks to God. What a testimony to the lost world. Remember Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16? They were put in jail. They were beaten in the city of Philippi. And at midnight, they are singing praise to God. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and say evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Christian, be joyful. What do we learn in James chapter 1 and verse 2? We are to be joyful. But if we're honest, we say, you know what? Lord, please forgive me. I'm not joyful. All the time. Because in our trials, we often respond, number one, with complaining, don't we? It's easy to complain. God, I don't like what you're doing. 
complaining. Second, we can also we can also respond with the twin of complaining would be discontentment. I can't stand this anymore. I think I know better than God. It should have gone this way. It should have happened this way. When we complain, when you and I are discontent, let that be an alarm that goes off. Lord, please forgive me. Help me to be joyful. Help me to be joyful. A third way in which our sinful hearts can respond is we can be bitter, not just complaining and discontent, but we can be bitter. I can't believe that God would do this to me. That's kind of a a bitter attitude. I can't believe he would do that. Or maybe number four, an escapism mentality. I'll just do anything to dull the trial. Give me a pill. Give me the alcohol. Give me the drug. Let me, let me just dull this thing and just feel better, almost like an escape mentality, but you're not dealing with the root issue. Or number five, and we see this all over in our society, isolation. I'm fine. I can handle it on my own. Don't, don't bother me. Leave me alone. I'm, I'm okay. Or number six, a jealousy, an envy of others. Well, they don't have the trial. Rather than looking upward to God, it can be easy to look horizontally at others and compare and say, man, they don't have it. And so when those kind of responses come in our hearts, we need to take those as loving reminders from our Holy Spirit who convicts us. And we say, Lord, please forgive me for the way I've responded. Help me to be joyful. What's the first pastoral way in which we are to respond to trials in life. Number one, be joyful. Let me give you number two if you're taking notes. Not just be joyful, but you got to get this. Number two, be hopeful. Be hopeful. Now, if, if, if verse two is what you're to do, be joyful. Verse three tells you why. Look at verse 3 with me. James chapter 1 verse 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I love that word know. What a good pastor. He says, I know you know this. I know you know this. Christian, you live with hope. You know that God is up to something good in your trial. You know it. You know that he's up to something good. Take your Bible. Let me show you this. Go back to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. Now, Paul is right in the middle of Romans 5 of giving this masterful presentation of the Christian message. How sinful we are. How holy God is. And what God did to provide the righteous Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to satisfy the demands of the law. He died for us. He rose from the dead for us. He is our justification. Now in chapter 5, therefore, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. You and I love that. Man, that's justification. That's great. Verse 3. 
And not only this, but we also exult. That's a word that means rejoice. We rejoice in our tribulations. Now, notice the parallel back with James. Because you know. Do you see it there in Romans 5, verse 3? Because you know that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance brings proven character. And proven character is hope. Christian, verse 3, back to James chapter 1, verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Christian, we live by what we know. We have embraced God's sovereignty. We know that God is sovereign, wise, the master, decreer of all things. Our God governs and rules and brings and is Lord over all things that ever happen in this world. You need to know, Christian, that the testing of your faith. Now, in your Bible, look at the word testing. Do you see that there in James 1, verse 3, the testing of your faith? Okay, when you and I read test, boys and girls, you might think of like a, a spelling test, you know, a math test, a, a science test. That's not the exam idea that James has here. Don't, don't think a moment in time, I study hard and then I take a test. That's not what James is talking about. He's not talking about an event. Listen carefully. He's talking about a process. Well, what do you mean, Jeff? It's the language of metallurgy. Metallurgy. When a metallurgist would extract a metal, he would have to refine that metal. It would kind of be rough around the edges. It wouldn't be attractive. It wouldn't be all that sturdy. And so here's what he would do. He would take out that metal, and then he would bring intense heat, and he would bring pressure so that that metal that was extracted would then become beautiful. It would become attractive, It would become sturdy. It would become durable because of the process of refining. That's the test that is being talked about. It is the refining test. Because you know, verse 3, that the refining process of being tested in your life produces endurance. I was sitting with a man who was doing this years ago, and he used to explain to me, when when I'm working with metals, here's what I do. Number one, you got to have high heat. Number two, you got to have intense pressure. And number three, you got to have a good measure of time. And if you've got heat, pressure, and time, you'll have a better metal, more durable. You can bend it the way that you wish. That's what God does to us. To grow us. And this is exactly, you're in James, just turn one book to the right, to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. This is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1. He talks about the great gospel in verses 3 and following. And now 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if 
necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof, there's the word, the testing, the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. That's the refining. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Christian, maybe you right now are in that intense refining process. Doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean God is mad at you. It doesn't mean God has forsaken you. It doesn't mean that God has failed you. It means that God has his loving eye upon you. And he's bringing heat and pressure and time to refine you in the testing period. Why? Like that metal. So that the edges will be smooth. So that you will become more beautiful. So that you will be more sturdy and endurable. That's what God does. Richard Wormbrand went through a fair share of suffering. You can read much more about that at Voice of the Martyrs. He was thinking on that question a lot. Why does God bring trials? And here's what Richard Wormbrand said. He said, I'm in the elementary school. But one day when I graduate from the university of the Christian life, that is when I make it to heaven, I will understand God's ways better and all doubts will ever cease. We're in the elementary school. We're learning. We're in that process of being refined. Now, look at verse 3, back to James 1, verse 3. We are to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because you know the refining, the testing of your Christian faith. Okay, it produces something. This is cool. It produces endurance. Endurance. Or if you have the ESV, you have steadfastness. Another English translation has, you'll have the ability to endure. It's, it's, if, you, if, you're, if you do this in your Bible, it's, it's one of the key words in the book of James. He comes back to it over and over and over. It's, I underline, you can circle it, you can highlight it. He's all about endurance. Because what is endurance? It is a long obedience in the same direction. It's not a faith that gives up. It's not a short-lived faith. It's a long obedience in the same direction. I like the way one commentator put it. He said, this kind of endurance is a militant patience. It's kind of fortitude. It's heroic endurance. Well, Lord, I don't want this right now in my life. Well, this kind of attitude right here in verse 3 says, you know what? I might feel like I don't want it right now, but God, I know that you are calling me to have a long endurance, a perseverance, a steadfastness. Now think about it. Abraham was tested and he endured. 
Think about Joseph in the book of Genesis. He was tested and he endured. Daniel, well, he, he endured a lot of testing and he endured. Job, I mean, his, his whole life was a life of testing and trial. King David was tested in many ways and he remained steadfast. King Hezekiah, when the Assyrians were coming, he remained steadfast. Nehemiah, when they returned from exile and they were trying to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem and all kinds of opposition, he had to have steadfastness. Peter, Paul, Jesus. They had to have endurance. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to jot down two little phrases because these Greek words are so colorful. I mean, there's so much to this word endurance or steadfastness. Let me give you the the two ways that you can understand it. Number one, it is a fixed direction. There's a fixed direction. I, I am going to stay on the path. To glorify God. There's a fixed direction. Second, there's a firm purpose. I don't feel like doing it. It hurts. It's hard. But I am firmly resolved. My, my, my anchor is down. My roots are deep. I am going to keep following God. Fixed direction. Firmness of purpose. Let, let me illustrate this. Fox's Book of Martyrs talks about a a man named Romanus. Romanus. He lived in the time of the 300s or so AD uh, during the reign of the Roman Emperor Licinius. Now, you can read in Fox's Book of Martyrs a very long and a detailed account of the sufferings and the hardship, and there were a lot of them in Romanus. But as he was being beaten and mistreated and oppressed, On one occasion, he was brought before these Roman leaders and they continued to beat him. Romanus said, look how many wounds I have all over my body. Every wound is, as it were, a mouth praising God. Wait, what? Wait, every wound on my body is like a mouth praising God? When that happened, One of the Roman persecutors at that time was astonished, here's what Fox said, with the singular constancy of Romanus that he commanded them to cease the tortures at that time. He was so astonished by the singular constancy, that steadfastness. There's a singular direction, a firm purpose. There's a direction and a depth. I have steadfastness. That's what Romanus did. He had steadfastness in following God. It was a long obedience through the difficulties. We have hope. We have hope, Christian. Because in our trials, we know that as God is refining us, guess what? God is working. God is producing this kind of a singular constancy, a firmness and endurance in your life. God is working in you through the trials. It's hard. It can be painful and difficult and prolonged. 
But God is working for your good in the trial. So James is saying in these opening verses, when the trials come, number one, be joyful, if you're taking notes, number one. Number two, be hopeful. Let me give you number three. Number three, you must be patient. I don't want that, a patient. No, no, no. I would rather say, Lord, you've grown me and taught me, thanks. Let's be done with that. I just want to get out from under the trial. Look at verse 4. It's a command. You must let endurance have its perfect effect or perfect result. Why? So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. No, no, no. I don't want to be patient when the trials come. I, in my flesh, I want the trial to be done. So... When you're living by feelings, you can't have joy in your trials because it doesn't feel good. When you're living for comfort, you'll do anything to get out of a trial because it's uncomfortable and hard. If somebody's living selfishly, well, we'll do anything to get what I want, to be where I want, to do what I want, to live how I want. If somebody's living by pride, we'll respond by being bitter, not better because of our trials, because I don't think I deserve them. And I I want something that I'm not getting. Or I receive something that I don't think I deserve, and I'm upset. But Christian, hear this. God loves He loves his beloved children so much that God actively is bringing trials into your life to grow you. And God is saying, I know it can be painful, but you need to let the trial have its work. That's why you need steadfastness. You need to bear up under this thing. Look, Abraham was a friend of God, and yet God tells Abraham, go and take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Now, don't miss this. Why all this? Because God will take you where you never intended to go in order to produce in you what you could never achieve on your own. I'll say that again. God in love will take you where you never intended to go. Why? Because he wants to produce in you what you could never achieve on your own. Verse 4. Let, let endurance have its perfect result. Let this great work happen in your life. You've got to respond patiently. Now, there's a call and a comfort here. Okay, let, let me give you the comfort first. And, and this is so, this is what makes this so practical and so amazing. Christian, your suffering, get this, is not ultimately about you. 
You're part of a, you're part of a bigger plan. You're part of a bigger purpose of God. You're part of God's plan. You're part of God's purpose. And God is using you in his plan for God's glory. So that God can showcase his beauty through you. Suffering never comes by chance. Never comes by bad luck. It's not about coincidence or being at the wrong place at the wrong time. It comes by the will and the appointment of God. Now, here's how practical that is. Every day of your life, every conversation of your life, every situation, every event, every engagement and interaction with other people, it is an opportunity for you to obey God as fulfilling the bigger plan of God. Christian, hear the comfort in that. The conversations, the circumstances, every event, everything is an opportunity to obey the Lord as part of his bigger plan of his love for you and for his own glory. So verse 4, look at it in your Bible, is a command. Let endurance have its perfect result. So the comfort is God is up to good and he brings it for his glory. But the call, the call is for you to let the trial have its work. It's, it's, like, it's like somebody who's working out. You know, a, a young man in college who goes to the gym and he's working out and he's, he's lifting weights. Why? Because when your muscles get bigger, they tear. So when they grow back, they're stronger. And that's how the muscles grow and they get stronger and mightier. That's how it is with trials. We can't avoid the trials, but we can make the decision to respond with confidence that I want to glorify God in the midst of my trial because I know that God is growing me. Let endurance, let the steadfastness, let this long obedience, let it have its perfect result. Let it have its perfect work in you. Why? Look at the end of verse 4. What's the purpose? What is God up to? God wants you to be perfect. Now, my English has the word perfect. Don't think sinless. That's not the idea. The word for perfect here means a well-rounded godliness. It's like a wholeness. God wants you to be blameless with your money, in your marriage, with your leisure time, with your hobbies, at your job, what you do with others, what you do in privacy. God wants you to be a well-rounded, whole Christian. And God brings trials, and God says, I know it's painful, but let it have its work in you. Let it have its work. Why? So that you may be perfect and complete. The word complete is a similar word, unvarnished. You're not lacking in anything. I'll I'll, I'll, uh, illustrate this with another man in church history. You know him, John Owen. John Owen. John Owen married a woman named Mary 
Together, they had 11 children. Only one of them made it to adulthood. And the one woman who made it to adulthood, after she had her first child, she died in the childbirthing process. The story goes that in one of the early seasons of their marriage, after being married for a handful of years, they had a few children, they lost five of their young children in four years. I mean, it's like, that, that's, that's enough, Lord, that's enough. I mean, losing one, okay, two, that's, that's enough, Lord. Three, four, five, that's enough. And yet this verse is saying, let Endurance, have its work, bear up under it. Why? Because God in love is behind all of it, working it together in his loving grace to grow you, to grow you. This is what it is to have God as your father. To have God as your loving, wise, perfect, powerful master. This is the idea in James chapter 1 here of let endurance have its perfect work that we read in Colossians 1, where Paul prays this for the believers. Colossians 1 and verse 11, I pray that you will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. What does Paul want? Paul says, Christian, I want you to be steadfast and I want you to be patient in your Christian life. This is how Epaphras, I can relate to this. This is how Epaphras, the pastor of the Colossian church, prayed. Listen to Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, laboring earnestly for you in his prayers so that you might be perfect and fully assured in the will of God. What does Epaphras want? He wants you to be patient, enduring the trial. Christian, when, not if, when the hard times come, be joyful, be hopeful, be patient. Where you have sinned, you come before your loving Heavenly Father, you confess your sin, you acknowledge it, you own it. To your loving God who says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive, isn't he? But do you know who lived out these verses perfectly? Jesus did. When you haven't lived out these verses perfectly, he did for you. He did. Jesus encountered difficulties. Jesus encountered trials. And yet he was joyful in all the trials. And hopeful in all the trials. And he let endurance have its perfect work. He didn't say enough. (laughs) I'm I'm done. This is too difficult. No, no, no. He endured to the end. Aren't we thankful for that? What a, what a strong champion we have in Christ. 
What a triumphant forerunner we have in Jesus Christ. What a worthy example he is that when you and I fail, remember Jesus succeeded for you. Look to him. Look to him. I want to close by asking you to turn just a few pages to 1 Peter chapter 1, just the next book to the right. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want to read one paragraph and then we'll close and be done. Because we need to hear the hope of the gospel and the same themes that we've been reading come out again. 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's salvation. God causes you to be born again from the inside out. Verse 4, so that you might obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's security. Verse 5, you're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Praise God for the sure hope that we have. Verse 6, in this hope you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, the testing, the refining of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though refined by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Christian, how do we have joy when we encounter trials? How are we to respond? What are we to do? What are the pastoral words of encouragement? Number one, be joyful. Number two, be hopeful. And number three, be patient. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. How great of a perfect guide your word is to show us how we are to live out our faith even in the difficult times. Oh, we glory in Jesus, our Savior, our champion, our redeemer, the lover of our souls. Thank you for his perfect righteousness that is credited to us by faith alone in him. That's what makes responding this way possible. Oh, Lord, would you help us? Help us, help us. When the trials come to say it is well with my soul. In Jesus' name, amen.